Well, good morning, Vintage Church. How are you? Y'all all right? Man, for those of you who are visiting with us, maybe for the first time or the first time in a while, you're probably like, who in the world is this guy? I've never seen him before. Well, my name's Stephen, and my wife and I, right here in the front row, we started Vintage Church in 2013 in our living room with about 13 people. And since we've launched multiple locations and built just an incredible uh, church. And I want to take just a moment before I jump in to just say thank you to our teaching team. Did they do a great job? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, a lot of times when we come in and we experience a culture and a welcoming place and, and, and really a respite from all the craziness that's happening outside of our four walls, I think we can neglect sometimes to understand that it's actually a team of people to do that. God actually, uh, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 that God gave some uh, gifts to the church. These are to church leaders, and it's not just one leader uh, preaching every week, building a tower and standing at the top of it, but it's actually, uh, when it's healthy, it takes a whole lot of leaders. And there's so many people behind the scenes, in addition to our serve team, in addition to uh, you, in addition to even our staff that make all of this possible. So before we go further, can we thank them as well? Man, it's so great. It's so great. You know, we're going to jump into week four uh, of a series we started a little over a month ago, where through the summer we're studying through the New Testament book of James. And one of the things that I have our teaching team do every single introduction is always uh, repaint the context. Always take a little bit of time to repeat the meaning and the point of the series. Did you know when you read the Bible and you read something over and over again or you see a pattern or a trend, did you know God wants to get emphasis to you? You actually remember and retain things when you continually hear them over and over and over again. Every parent here, you know what I'm talking about, right? Your kids don't got it until they do it. And, you, and for them to do it, you got to repeat yourself over and over and over again. You know, we pick this, this book because the New Testament book of James really is uh, just, it's really a New Testament Proverbs. It really is. When you read through uh, this book, uh, I'm going to introduce the character for those of you who may just be joining us. James is, there's lots of Jameses in the Bible. It can be kind of confusing. You know, James, Peter, John, there's a lot of them. Okay. It's a very Hebrew name, but the James we're talking about that penned this book is the half brother of Jesus. If you've ever had a sibling make you feel insecure for any reason, Jesus understands. I mean, I'm sorry, James understands your pain. James grew up with Jesus. Jesus was 100% human, 100% God, okay? He was apprenticed to his, half, uh, his half-father, Joseph. Uh, and, and so James got to see his brother up close and personal. I have a lot of people ask me weird questions as a pastor. Like, they say, like, Jesus was 100% human, 100% man, but like, do you think he went to the bathroom like the rest of us? To which case I would say, yes, that's a crazy, crazy question. Absolutely he did. And although he was perfect, he didn't sin, James like was kind of familiar with him, you know? He was like, he's like his, his, his half-brother, you know, his older brother. He was right there all the time. As a matter of fact, when Jesus would start his ministry, he was 30 years old. And he would step out and he would begin to, be, to teach a radically different perspective on life and culture than what surrounded him. And, and in Mark 3, we actually see that James did not believe in Jesus. As a matter of fact, when Jesus like started to... I remember when I gave my life to Christ, like everything in my life changed. Like I was still pretty messed up. I had a lot of stuff to work through. I still do. Okay, but there was something inside of me that changed right away. It was like, my, it was like what I desired changed. Like all the sins that many of them I was still enraptured by, they lost all of their flavor and fun. All of a sudden it was like, man, I couldn't get away with anything and not feel bad about it. That was a conviction of the Holy Spirit. I remember my own family coming to me and wondering like, hey, like, is this a cult? 
Like, you're, this, how many of y'all know the song Jesus Freak? You know what I'm talking about? You got to be real old to know Jesus Freak. That's kind of what I was. And, and I'll be honest, my, my entire family, all of them have since given their life to Christ. It took about 20 years. Okay, but all of them have since surrendered their life to Christ from our example and our family and all of that. But at the beginning, they kind of stepped back and they were like, man, I don't know about all this Jesus thing, okay? I don't know about all that. This is kind of what James did to Jesus. Matter of fact, it wasn't just James. It was his other brothers and his mom. Yeah, the Virgin Mary. We're talking about her. She had struggled believing this kingdom, believing these teachings. It struggled. I mean, she saw the miracles with her eyes, but man, she was just a little skeptical. Do we have any skeptics in the house? Come on, you be honest. You're skeptical. You're skeptical about what I'm going to do if you raise your hand. That's what I'm saying. That's right. Come on. We got skeptics in the house. And, and, and all throughout Jesus' ministry, James kind of was at a distance watching. But then Jesus makes his turn to Jerusalem. In the scripture, it actually says he, he, he set his face on Jerusalem, meaning he set his face on the ultimate reason he was put on this earth, and that was to die for our sins at the cross. And James watched that journey to the cross, watched his half-brother die on that cross. And then three days later, he would rise again, and Scripture teaches us he appeared personally, directly, to over 500 individuals, many more thousands of groups and crowds. But one of those people, as we see in the Apostle Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians 15, was specifically to his half-brother James. And in that moment, all of a sudden, James beholds the resurrected Christ. I'm sure he was a skeptic, you know, like, you know, the doubter gets, you know, James, it's a different James, but, you know, put his finger in there, put his, you know, wanted to really see. All of a sudden, he experienced something more than his half-brother. He came face-to-face with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. In that moment, James went into full-time ministry right then. Right then, he began to follow Jesus, not as a familiar older brother, but as God and King. It completely changed his life. As a matter of fact, he would go on to take over the first church at Jerusalem. It was a mega church with lots of mega problems. By the way, that's what mega churches have, mega problems. All right. And he, would, he wasn't even the first guy, man. He didn't even get there first. The first guy, another James, talk about confusing. He was actually killed by the government in coercion with the Sanhedrin, the religious elite. And so he's stepping in, and James would eventually be martyred for his faith in a very similar fashion as well. But one of the things I love about James is James was no faker. Let me say it this way. James was no punk. Men, you know what I'm talking about. You come to church, you know, you have those little pictures, little Renaissance pictures, paintings of Jesus. You know, he's like seven feet tall, white, blue eyes with long hair. It's probably not what he looked like, by the way. You know, kind of holding a lamb, petting a lamb. You know, he's very empathetic and sympathetic. We have this picture of Jesus, right? We have this picture. And, and, and James was just like, no, James knew his brother. James saw his resurrection, saw his power, saw what was coming. He worked day in and day out in the church. He pinned this book to the church. He pinned this book to, a, to the church that had all the same problems, even worse than we have today. You guys, you know, when you look out in culture, everything that's happening has happened before. Questioning the very nature of, of God the very biological realities of male and female, of human sexuality, right? The very foundations of, uh, of God, attacking the image bearer of God. Child sacrifice was alive and well in that area. And here, James is pastoring a church right in the center of all of that. They're confused a little bit. They're like, you know, somebody, I stood up for the Bible and somebody called me divisive. 
called me a mean name on Facebook. I'm not really sure how to deal with that. You know, the Twitter mob showed up at my house. Not really. The 12 people in their basement that had nothing better to do decided that they would be mean to me online. They were struggling with it. Like, what, what exactly is a Christian's place in this world gone mad? And James sits down and he writes this wisdom book to show you how to actually exercise your faith on Monday. He started teaching a sermon series in the form of a letter. We have chapters and verses just so we can find our way around. But it was one letter. I want to encourage you if you've missed any one of these messages, go back because you're missing a piece of his message. How many of y'all love it when I have like a four-point message and I skip the, mid- the first one? And you have that blank in there and it's like glowing at you. Well, you missed something. To understand what comes after, sometimes you have to go back. And James is an incredible book of that. Here's the big idea. A genuine relationship with Jesus always results in a life of action. He says you have to hold intention, right believing with right behaving. That your, your behavior doesn't get you into heaven. Salvation's a free gift. However, you better have some right behaving to be evidence that you even know Jesus and have the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Meaning that it might take a while, right? But the Jesus you asked into your heart has to make his way out through your hands, through your mouth, through your walk with God. Today we're going to look at wisdom. We've looked at several different things. Last week we talked about our words, right? This week we're going to talk about wisdom. And it's interesting to note that he is, he's in a primarily Jewish church. These are believers that were Jewish that gave their life to Christ, and they became Christians. But they had a strong foundation in this understanding of wisdom. And James goes right back to that understanding in James 3.13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So what exactly is wisdom? I'm glad you asked. The dictionary defines wisdom as the ability to discern what is true or right. When I was studying this, as we were preparing these messages, I dug deeper into the Hebrew word of wisdom in James 3, and it's actually much deeper than the Webster Dictionary. Here's the biblical definition of wisdom. This is very important. You can learn a lot. Wisdom, from a Judeo-Christian view, is having the ability to choose the right path, and, everybody say and. It's not just knowing that's the way you should go. It's having the fortitude to take that path. It's not just knowing that's a good idea and I should go that way because God says that's the way to go, but it's having the fortitude or the courage to actually do it when no one around you wants to. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of believers, we we elevate this, we know the truth, but it's not setting us free because we've not walked in the fortitude to actually obey, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you won't retweet me. You won't just post one-line scriptures about me. I saw a post from another pastor, and it bothered me. Why not talk about it now? (laughs) My job as a pastor, he says, is to just speak Jesus, 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 Jesus. I said, listen, that sounds more Bethel than it sounds like the Bible. And I love Jesus. Does everything point to Jesus? But as a pastor, it's not just to hug babies. It's to stand up and to give you some language to give you some biblical understanding so that you can have fortitude to not just know the truth, but but to actually walk it out. Matter of fact, the greatest mystery in all the Bible is what we're doing right here. Jesus himself said he hid the church since the foundation of the world. 
even the disciples watching him go to a cross, him resurrecting, the Holy Spirit falling on the church in Acts, they had no idea that he was doing this. It was a great mystery, and it was revealed at just the right time. Do you know what's supposed to happen in here? We're supposed to grow a backbone in here that's founded, placed on the Bible. I love that worship song we just sang. It's from Matthew in the Beatitudes, where Jesus gives his first longest sermon. He talks about the difference between the wise and the foolish builder. One builds on the rock, the other on the sand. The rain, the storm hit both of them, but one stood and one didn't. Mark my words, your Christian life, right? It doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth. It matters what's left standing after the storm hits your house. And my job as your pastor isn't just, isn't just to, to talk. This is, this is hard, right? This is hard. Because a lot of people, when they look at Jesus, you don't remember, Jesus said he only saw him, he only, he only did what he saw the Father doing, right? Think about this for a minute. Did he welcome the sinner at times? Did he also walk into the synagogue and turn over the money, ta- money changers? Read that story. You see, for a lot of believers, <clears throat> we want to cherry pick the truth of God's word. This is why the Bible tells us we need to learn to rightly divide the truth. This is why God gives your church leaders authority. God gives your third church leaders spiritual gifts in Ephesians chapter 4 to help you rightly divide it because there's always going to be somebody who's going to try to pervert the wisdom of God. It's not just knowing the truth, but it's actually in a community of believers getting the backbone together to stand for the truth. What are they standing on? Again, I'm really glad you asked. Psalm 111 verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, if we don't start there, by the way, that word fear is not the bad fear. The bad fear is you're a coward. The bad fear is you're timid. The bad fear is you're more worried about what social media thinks about you than what God thinks about you. The fear of the Lord is a totally different word in the Hebrew. I was thinking about the fear of the Lord, and I I couldn't come up with a better illustration than this one. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to preach for a great friend of mine, uh, Eric Lawson at Element Church. Uh, My wife and I actually grew up in his church. He led me to Christ when I was 11 years old. I snuck into youth group. I had to be 13 to be there. He didn't care. He led me to Jesus. He would go on to disciple me. 27 years I've walked with Eric Lawson. And he invited me to come speak in his church. It's a little intimidating. I didn't really think about it until I got there. And, and, and I, I go and I'm, I'm preparing it. And he kind of tells me what he, what, he liked, what he thinks the church needs. And we talk. And we get on the plane and we go. And I'm sitting there and I'm starting to get nervous. Like, I've spoken at places, okay? But I'm starting to get really, really nervous. Like the first time in the movie theater when we launched the church, I'm nervous. My wife can see it. So she's squeezing my hand just praying in tongues in her breath. I don't know what she was doing, but she was praying. And she's just squeezing my hand, and later I would find out she was more nervous for me than I thought I was. He starts talking about our relationship. He starts talking about the longevity. My wife and I got married in 2005. She turned 18 in April. We got married in June, moved to St. Louis to help plant that church as the very first couple there in July. And, and, and we didn't realize all that. We're just doing ministry. He helped us start this church, by the way. Completely wouldn't be here without him. And, and I'm sitting there, and for the first time, I realized this kind of fear. It wasn't a fear that he would reject me, because I knew he wouldn't do that. 27 years, I gave him plenty of reasons to reject me, and he didn't. It's the power of spiritual family. It, it wasn't that I'd always done things right, or he'd always done things right. We had both have our share of doing things wrong. 
It was that I so wanted to do a good job for him. I so wanted him to be proud of me. And him, I wanted to add value in a way that he added value into my life. By the way, there's nothing more godly than that. That's the fear of God. The fear of God is you want to please God at the expense of every other relationship in your life. That no matter what, James says this, no matter what, you're going to face that mirror knowing that you'll never this side of heaven be everything you were supposed to be, but one day you will be. Right? But you're, you're taking steps to grow in your faith, and you so want to please God that all those other little fears, the fear of safety, right? The fear of rejection, the fear of the Twitter mob, the fe- anything else, you just go, you know what? I'm going to stand before an audience of one one day. That's the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of everything in your life. David wrote this in Psalm 19.9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The things of this world, Jesus says, are flying away. They're fleeting away. How many of you guys are still scared of COVID? Not as much as you were in March of 2020. What does that mean? Well, that was temporary. Things come and go. Things come and go, but man, the fear of the Lord, it's clean. It, 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 it's not fickle. It stays there. So it's this understanding of wisdom. This is important. It's this understanding of wisdom that James is preaching the entire message series on. He's preaching to a Jewish audience who would have understood the biblical idea of wisdom. We're a bunch of Gentiles <laughs> that don't. So with this understanding, he writes this in James chapter 3, verse 13. This is a letter to the church, by the way, not a Facebook post. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy or self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Do not boast and lie against the truth. The wisdom, this wisdom, this peace, right, this empathy, it does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Ask the average person what a woman is, and you'll see confusion. It's not really that confusing. But the wisdom that is from above, everyone say above, is first pure. It's first pure, then it's peaceable. We have a lot of people that are seeking peace without the truth. You can't get to peace without the truth. You can't. You have to start with the truth, and you move to peace. Gentle. By the way, this word gentle has been misinterpreted at the expense of godly men, quite frankly. That word gentle doesn't mean soft. It doesn't mean weak. It means power under control. You know what it means? It means that, yes, man, there's a time where if you let the Kraken out, there's going to be some business. But you have maturity enough to know when and where. It's power under control. Restore those in the church gently. That's power under control. I have power to destroy you, but I'm going to control it, and I'm going to channel it to bless you and to restore you. Anytime you read the word gentle, that's the word that's translated here. Willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy is not giving somebody what they deserve. Anybody here married? Come on, ladies, you know what I'm talking about. His clothes may belong on the street, okay? But you're having mercy on him. Come on. <laughs> it's good fruits. It's without partiality. It's without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I want to give you some really practical things in the next 10 minutes. I'm going to go just a few minutes over. Is that okay? I haven't preached in a while. So 
You guys are wondering why I have a sore throat. Well, my wife had a cold, and then I made out with her. So that's what happened. (laughs) It's true. It's true, and it's her fault. Anyways, so wisdom in motion. Wisdom in motion. A few things. Wisdom from God. God's wisdom is above us. I love the word above. It'll never change. It's always higher than us. It's higher than our iPhone. It's higher than our own pride, our own hypocrisy. It's higher than everything. Bible overhead. The wisdom from God is not from us. By the way, you don't invent or reinvent truth. Just like Jesus revealed to James he was the son of God, God reveals it or you discover it. But it's all already. Do you know truth isn't truth because you say it's true? And regardless, regardless, it doesn't matter, it's still true. Try breaking the truth, it'll break you before you break it. Everything that works, right? Everything that's healthy, brings life, comes from above, comes from above. 1 John 4, 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't fall for every trap. Don't accept every premise of every person, but test the spirits, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. James 13, 3.13 says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. You know, there are two things that God gives you to help you with this. And I think as believers, we don't quite understand how they work together. Uh, The first one is God's given us his word, right? Same words on a page. We all see the same thing. We're all hearing the same thing. I'm teaching from God's word. You're opening your Bible on your own, hopefully. Start in James. It's a good book to start in. And you're learning what God's ways are, what his truth are. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that God rarely ever blesses what I ask him to bless. You know what I mean? Like I'll have an idea that I think's good, and I'll say, God bless me. Here's what I've learned. As you open up God's word, you learn what he already blesses. And then you get yourself under his blessing. That's something that you're not going to hear shouted on late night Christian TV because nobody wants to amen that. Because it requires you to change you. Because it requires you if something's not going right in your life. By the way, God's not a loser. You without God, big loser. So if something's losing, if it's not working, humble yourself. Go back to God's word. It is truth. And put yourself under the truth. That's the first thing. The next thing you've got to do is you've got to learn to plant yourself in the family of God. Do you know where we practice being the light of the world? Right here. Many believers are horrible at being the light and the salt because they never practiced in their family. Because they're like orphans. Being an adopted kid, I can assure you, being an orphan is a curse, not a blessing. God gave us family for a reason. There's something about being in God's family. You have the family of God. They help you mature. You know what they do? James would say this. James would say, you know, the Bible helps you know and the family helps you do. The Bible helps you know which way to go. The family teaches you how to appropriately do it. And many of us, we just haven't humbled ourselves as apprentices in God's family. We've stayed in the high chair or no chair at the table and we've refused to grow up. And sometimes... Life will just keep hitting you until you realize, hey, you actually are better with a family than without one, even when they're unperfect. People are coming to the church all the time. This church is awesome. This is the greatest place ever. Man, that other church, man, it sucked. Those people were mean. I said, just stay here longer. You'll see those people too. Come on. 
not about perfection. It's about maturity. Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. First Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in good times. You know, sometimes humility actually looks, at, looks like the world throwing rocks at you. Sometimes the most humble thing you can do is speak the truth and not run away from someone. Sometimes the most humble thing you can do is engage and not cower. Because in due season, integrity doesn't need a defense. Why? Because truth always works. You've got to work it and stand. It's so important. I was thinking about this this week. It's not in my notes, but I want to help you because I think um, we're going to talk a lot in the fall about some hot topic issues uh, that most people just won't talk about in church because they're cowards. And we're just not, we're just going to talk about them because you need to know what to do. You need to know at least how to think, how to engage. We're going to talk a lot about that in the fall. Okay, but I was, I was thinking about this cycle that you can find yourself in when you're engaging um, somebody who's far from God, either by choice or by ignorance. They're just running from God. Uh, when you're engaging culture, there's a cycle that can take a believer who means well. Like, how many of you just woke up this morning and you just thought, man, I just want to burn it all down? <laughs> but you kind of look out sometimes and you go, why, why does it feel like I'm kind of being part of burning it all down? <laughs> well, what's the, what happens? What takes that believer and then essentially makes them complicit in the enemy's schemes and deception and culture? What is that? I believe James dealt with this tremendously. That's why the tone of James is very practical. It's very, it's very look at the results. And I think there's a cycle of deception. This isn't in your notes, but I, I think you can see it. It's happened in my life when I see myself getting off track, when I see myself getting far, uh, I, I go to the cycle. The first cycle is this. Culture says you must tolerate me. The first word is tolerate. You must tolerate me. It's interesting because this is kind of like the surface level. It's kind of like, well, what other choice do I have, Right? Like, I mean, you're going to do what you're going to do. You can't control people. I mean, is anybody married? <laughs> we have kids. You can't, I mean, ultimately, right, it's influence. You can't really control people. So there's a level where tolerate, okay, I'm going to tolerate that. Here's the problem, though. We accept tolerate, and then, it, and, and here's the deal. We accept what we tolerate. So the next one is you have to accept me. You have to accept me just like I am right now. Can I, you hear things like this. You're good just the way you are. Who believes that crap? You're a narcissist if you believe that, or you're just too young and dumb to have been paying attention. How many of you just woke up, I'm just enough today? I don't know about you, but I'm an idiot most days. I wake up and I'm, I'm, I can see it. I'm not enough. That's a lie. You're enough. We accept people for who they are. Well, who's that exactly? Who they've said they are? who God says they are. But that's what happens. You accept me. Okay, I'll accept you. I did this in 2015 to the the gay marriage decision. I did that. I had that posture. It was wrong. It was wrong. Marriage is God's idea, not man's. Let, let, Let who God joined, nobody separate. I did. I just was kind of like, whatever. And, you know, the theater used it as an excuse to kick me out, which is why we got a building one day. That's cool. I was growing, though. What happened? Man, I just, I just I tolerated it. Then I just kind of accepted it. But here's what comes next. You must celebrate it. 
Now you've got to celebrate everything that God's against. I love this passage of scripture. There's a story of Joshua where an angel of the Lord shows up and he, Joshua sees him in the distance and realizes, whew, that's God. Joshua walks up and he says, he says, are you for me or against me? Are you friend or foe? You know what the angel said? Neither. I'm with God. What about you? Think about that for a minute. We expect God to be for us. He's not. God's not for you. God's for him. You're not love. God is love. When you get underneath him, now God loves you. He wants you. Okay, but your life will never be all that it's supposed to be while you keep trying to pull God into it. Get yourself under God, under his authority. You got to celebrate it. Here's the next one. The next one, you ready for the next one? You got to participate in it. You tolerate it, step one. You accept it, step two. You celebrate it, step three. We've all had a whole month of that garbage. And then step four is you need to participate in it. You need to participate in it. It's a slippery slope, guys. And ultimately, you don't have to do any of those things if God's not called you to. If any of that comes in contrary with God's word, there's nothing more Christian and gentle, power under control, than doing the right thing. The next is the world's wisdom is below us. The wisdom that does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. It means it's about me, it's all touchy-feely, and it's a little sexy, you know? Like, follow me on TikTok, you know? It's easy. It's, it fills coliseums. Fills them, you know? It's popular. Chances are, if it's popular, it's probably demonic. The Apostle Paul echoes James's concern with this kind of deceit that gets its way into the church. Colossians 2.18, Beware at least anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of man, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Be careful. Beware, James said to his church. Beware. What's the posture of false wisdom? 314, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, you can always see that. So what do we do? You have wisdom from above and you have wisdom from below. What is the posture or response of a Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christian? I would go as far as to say, if this isn't your response, you're not saved. The Bible tells us exactly what it looks like. If you love me, you will obey me, Jesus says. If you have a hard time ever obeying him or you throw it away, you likely are kidding yourself. And one day you're going to stand before Christ. I did all of these things in your name. I said all the right things. I posted all the right scripture. And Jesus is going to look at you and say, I never knew you. Why? Because you never actually surrendered your life to me. This is the thing you should do as a believer. Choose God's wisdom. You've got to choose. There is no Switzerland. How nice is that? Everyone else fights war, so Switzerland can just benefit it, benefit from it. By the way, any freedom we have today is because other people took responsibility. It's not even every right you have, you didn't earn. Somebody else did because they took responsibility. You've got to choose. And I believe we're going into a season as believers. I think it's going to be one of the most exciting times for the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, I'm going to talk to our staff tomorrow, and I'm going to open up the invitation from time to time, we'll have roundtables and speakers come in. 
I'm going to be speaking about something um, that I think is going to prepare our hearts for the fall as people who love God. I think we have a slide for it. Let me put that up. I would love to invite you. We'll take care of everything. I think we're doing food. Uh, but I'm going to talk to our staff, and I'm just going to, I'm going to project a little bit about what I see in, in the future, about some of the things we're going to be doing as a church, but also a, a really good teaching on what it means to be a part of the family of God, what we need to be looking out for as Christian leaders as we go into what I believe will be one of the greatest times of revival in the church, but it will also be one of the greatest times of attack to the church. And so I want to invite you, if you can make it. No, we're not going to record it because who knows what I'm going to say. But you're welcome to come and be a part of that if you'd like. Let's remember this as we close, John 10, 10. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. It's not going to be your way. It's going to be his way. Walking in godly wisdom. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much, Lord, for the power of your word. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our spiritual family. I thank you for all of the people committed to following you sincerely. And I I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with them this week as they begin to integrate their faith into every other part of their life biblically. I thank you, God, you're going to open up opportunities for them to share their faith. You're going to open up opportunities for them to engage. You're going to open up opportunities for us as a church to be a city on a hill, bright and good. Not because of our own righteousness, but because of you, because of you being put first in every area of our lives. I pray, Father, also for anybody in here that doesn't know you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them to your truth and that they would find life as a result. As heads are bowed, eyes are closed, no one looking around for just a minute. We're almost done. I believe one of the most important things we do across all of our locations is we provide a a moment, a place, and a space in every single service for people who are far from God to draw near to him. Here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to embarrass you. We're not going to single you out or do anything weird. But I do believe if you're in here and you're not right with God, maybe you've given your life to Christ in the past, but you're not following him. Maybe you've never really fully committed with both feet to following him. I can assure you that your life will never, ever be what it was meant to be without him. And I think it's important that you acknowledge that. You know, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The problem today is many people want salvation without giving Jesus lordship. You can't have salvation without Jesus having lordship. And that starts from an act of free will of you voluntarily saying, you know what? I'm getting off the throne of my life and I'm putting my life in your hands, Christ. I'm putting my life in the forgiveness of the cross. I'm putting my life in the power of the resurrection. I'm putting my life in your hands so that I can hear your voice and do only what you tell me to do. As heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're in here today, you say, Pastor, that's me. I'm far from God. I don't want to be. Again, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I think it's important that you acknowledge that between me, you, and God. Is that you? Would you just put your hand up halfway and put it right back down? I see you. I see you. Just up and down. I see you. Hands are all over the room. By the way, you're never the only one. That's the biggest lie the devil tells. Is there anyone else you say, Pastor, that's me? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. In a moment, we're going to pray a prayer. As a matter of fact, our entire church is going to pray this prayer loud with you so as to encourage your faith, but it's essentially just an act of free will. You're planting your feet in the sand. You're getting serious about your faith. I want to encourage you as I repeat this prayer, say it loud enough where you can hear yourself. Church, we're going to say it loud enough so as to encourage those people in their faith. But if you're in here and you raise your hand, allow this to be an expression of why you raised your hand. I believe Jesus is going to meet you on the other side with some next steps. We're going to give you 
some steps as well. But right now, let's pray. Church, we believe in what they're doing. Let's all pray this together. Let's pray, Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth, for living a perfect life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I believe that you are good, and I believe that you are God. I believe you died for my sins, and you defeated death when you rose from the dead. I believe you defeated death to give me life. Today I choose life. Today I make you my Lord, my Savior, and my King. Lead me and guide me. Show me what's next. It's in your name that I pray. And everybody said, amen. Come on, church. Put a hand.